This morning we're going to be in Colossians 3. We're going to walk verse 12 through verse 17. As I've thought about this passage this week, and as I've thought kind of how to come into this, um, I had this dawning understanding and this, this deep sense of, of thanksgiving, of joy. And it was really just over the fact that, that I was born a man and not a woman. Um, as, as we look at this passage, Paul goes in, he describes those things that Christians should put on, and, and commentators go and they talk about how it's, it really should be seen under this metaphor of clothing, and I just thought, thank God I was born a man and not a woman. Um, I tend to wear the same things over and over again. Uh, Sunday morning, when it's time to, to, to get dressed, you know what thought runs through my mind? It's not, what should I wear? It's, what did I wear last week? Man, I hope I didn't wear this last week. I don't see wrinkles. I don't think I wore this last. Did I wear it on Wednesday, though? My wife has a very different conversation. It's, you know, what do you think about this top? And then once we get the top, what do you think about this jacket? We get the jacket. What do you think about this accessory? I'm like, I like my watch. It's the same one I've always worn. I've got another one, but the battery's dead, and so I don't wear it anymore. But the thought of, 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 of what clothes to wear is something that we, we each deal with uh, on a daily basis. Some of you, you haven't done laundry in quite some time. It's your, your options, your selection is getting smaller, or we all hope that it is. Some of those uh, of you sitting on the row, you indicate that those on the row with you have not been ab- abiding by that. Their choices should be getting smaller, but their clothes and the odor that's coming off of them give the indication that they don't care. Um, but as, as Christians, we have specific things we should put on that we should wear. But the interesting thing about this is that it's not that somebody came up to you and said, look, you want to be a Christian, that's great. Let me tell you what you need to look like. You want to be a Christian, that's, that's fantastic. Let me tell you what your life needs to look like. And once you get it there, come back, we'll meet again, and we'll, I'll show you how you can do that. In a very real sense, to be a Christian is to walk into a room and you're wearing tattered rags and you're stained with all of this stuff. In fact, Paul looked at his righteousness and said in Philippians that it is scubula, that it is excrement. He looked at it and said, this is all I've got. This is what my righteousness is. This is what all my accomplishments are. They are dung. They are trash. This is me. That's us coming into the gospel, but, but God comes along. He infuses in us this, through the power of the Spirit, he makes us clean, he makes us whole, he exchanges our rags and, and our tattered clothes for righteousness. And it's after that change has taken place that we begin to ask these questions of what do I do as a result of that? You see, if you just come to salvation and you stop there and you say, look, I'm saved, I'm done, then you're living a, a, an unfinished Christian life. You haven't fully given yourself to him. You've received his gift of salvation, but you haven't continued to live and move and seeing what does that look like after? What does it look like after? Paul gives us here in Colossians 3, 12 through 17, a picture of what it looks like after. And as we talked about a few minutes ago, one of the ways of manifesting that is through practicing robust forgiveness. Read with me in Colossians 3. Starting at verse 12, we're going to read through 17. Paul writes and says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul starts in the beginning of this, and the overarching metaphor that he's creating is one of, of outward adornment. Now, as Paul has walked through the book of Colossians, he's seeking to assure them of where they are in Jesus. In fact, if you look just back up to verse 1 in chapter 3, you see that if, he writes, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ. He said, look, if your life is different, if you have asked God for forgiveness, if he has raised you, if he has forgiven you, and then he continues to move forward. Verse 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's talking about the Christian. If you're a non-Christian, you hear this, and you think, if I could just incorporate these things in my life, everything would be good, great, and wonderful. You're never going to do it. It is impossible for you to do it. We read elsewhere in the Bible that it is impossible without faith to please God. It is impossible without faith in Jesus Christ, his transforming work of the Spirit, to live a life that glorifies him. You just can't do it. Look at verse 8. He says, but now you must put them away all, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. He says, look, if you're a Christian, if God has done a work of regeneration, of salvation in your heart, get rid of these things. They've got no place in you. When they come up, you put them away. When you say things, you apologize for them. When they start to creep up, they start to manifest, even that's the way you used to be, Put them away again. Put them away again. And look here in verse 10. He says, they have put on the new self. The old self has died, as Paul writes about, and the new self has come along. And this new self, verse 10, is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. We're being made in the likeness of Jesus. That's what happens at salvation. That is what's happening over the course of your life. But look who he sees you as. He says, put on then, and he, he pauses parenthetically, and he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, Paul is likely taking here from Deuteronomy 7, 6, which says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There in Deuteronomy we read of Israel who is chosen, who is precious, and he uses very much the same language here of the church. This is how he sees you. This is how he sees you. He sees, he sees you through the blood of Jesus. He sees you through the blood of Jesus. He looks at you and where you're so tempted to look in the mirror and see your failings throughout the week. You look in the mirror and, and, and what you see is, oh man, I remember when I yelled at my boss, I yelled at my kids, I kicked the dog, I kicked the cat. God's not angry about the cat. And, 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 and you move on these things and, and you think all the things you've done terribly wrong in the past week and, and it eats you alive inside. 
And you begin to ask the question, why can't I just live this way? Why can't I do this thing? And, and, and it pulls you, in some sense, for some of you, further and further away from God. You feel this, this distance created between the two of you. But look how he sees you. You're chosen. You're holy. And you're the object of his love in Jesus Christ. But in some sense, our, our track record, it, it militates against that. It, it drives in us not to want to receive that, not to want to take that in. Instead, we want to push that away and say, I know I'm saved in Jesus, but I just, man, I just, I just don't think I can receive his love and his care right now. Don't let your feelings get in the way of what you know. Don't let your feelings get in the way of what Scripture says. The passage goes in and Paul writes, he says, this is who you are. Your feelings don't always indicate that. They are fickle. They are misleading. And if you go on your feelings, there are going to be days you wake up and you say, I'm just going back to bed. I didn't sleep well. I had horrible dreams. I know what's before me. Or you get out of bed, you walk in, and there's no coffee, and you say, forget this. A day with no coffee. The world would come to an end. I might kill someone. Your feelings are fickle. But the word of God is your mainstay, is your anchor. When your feelings have a tendency to tempt you to believe something other you treat them just like all the other stuff in your life. You put them away. You have died to those thoughts. Don't allow them to reign supreme in your life. Look what he says we should put on on the basis of who we are. He comes in and he sets this pretty high list. He says, compassionate hearts. I am low on compassion. Just, just, just me and kind of who I am. This is something that, that, that I work on, something I try hard to do. It's strange for me. Get a good Hallmark commercial and I'm bawling. Give me somebody whose life's falling apart and I'm just, that's, that's too bad. This is something I daily pray for. You can kind of see where you are in this, this litmus test of, of how have you responded how have you responded when you've seen people around you hurting? How have you responded when you've seen people around you in need and, 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 and desperate and crying out? Did, did you rush to their aid? Because that's what this says. This idea of having compassionate hearts is this heart to want to get invested in the lives of people around us, want to help pull them up out of the muck and the mire they're in, in compassion, sharing the gospel with them, in compassion, meeting them at the place of their need. Paul's word here, it's not an option for you. It's not like walking into your closet and you say, what do I want to put on today? I don't know, Galatians 5, there's a lot of fruits of the Spirit. I'd like to put on some joy today. That's good stuff. I'd like to put on some, no, I don't want to put that on. That one costs a little too much. Paul comes into this passage and he says, you put this stuff on. This is who you are in him. You put on a compassionate heart. You be kind. 
Now, some of you are, are, are seeing this list and saying, oh, this is amazing. If the church actually did this stuff, it'd be a great place to go. If the churches I've been a part of in my past actually did this, maybe they wouldn't have suffered so many problems that they had. You know what? Any church you're ever a part of is going to have people. Unless you decide to stay at home, sit in your bathroom, close the door, and read your Bible alone. In which case, don't look in the mirror because you're just going to trouble yourself. Has broken people that have been redeemed, that have been saved, that are struggling with the same sins and difficulties that you are. And we're told that we are to put on kindness. Kindness to one another. What a beautiful and wonderful thing that Paul, as he's walking through this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought to stop and say, be kind to one another. It's not a suggestion in the way that we are to treat one another. We are to be kind. We are commanded to be kind. Look here, humility. Now the amazing thing about this is that we, through our study in Philippians, we got a beautiful picture of what humility is. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, this is one of the ways that Paul described it. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's really getting into this description of our next term, which is meekness. But humility looks at self and considers everybody else to be more worthy, to be more honorable. Now, it's not a sense of false humility that that is really just just pride covered up. False humility is, is, is this. You get done doing something, you walk in, you're like, well, I, I did a really sorry job on that, didn't I? And you're hoping somebody disagrees with you. I did a really sorry job. I don't think you heard me. I did a really sorry job on that. Nobody responds. Everybody recognizes that you actually did a sorry job on it. So you keep saying it over and over again. That is pride masquerading as humility. But humility recognizes not shoddy workmanship and those things that you do, but it recognizes value in others. It is antagonistic towards pride and arrogance. It's rightly recognizing where you are in a relationship to others. And as Paul describes to us, you need to seek to defer to others. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus. Look at verse 8 in chapter 2 of Philippians. Jesus, who by virtue of who he was, is, is preeminent in all things as we read. But in verse 8 of chapter 2 in Philippians, it says, Being in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How far should humility go? Jesus gives us his pattern of humility, that it takes great cost. Humility is not something you fake. It's not something that you, you, you... are going to master, you're going to master in a day. Humility is something that each of us will rightly struggle with the course of our lives. And then we read meekness. Flip over to Matthew 11 and 29. And this is what Jesus said of himself. Let me start in 28. He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's this idea of of meekness. And then finally we read patience. (coughs) 
Patience is something certainly most of us struggle with. In a microwave society where if dinner takes anything longer than 45 seconds to warm up, we start getting irritated, right? I mean, I put things in the oven and I ask Valerie all the time, can I please turn it on convection? Like it doesn't feel like it goes a whole lot faster, but I see that fan moving and it just makes me less anxious for dinner. Patience is something we struggle with. It's something that Jesus was perfect in demonstrating. It's God. It's something that God was perfect in demonstrating towards you. God was patient concerning you, waiting for you to come to him and receive salvation. Now look, look here. This passage moves out from this description of those things that we have to have. He says, put on then, this is who you are, this is what you do. You put on compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is how you see if you're doing it. Bear with one another. Bear with one another. This is not a pleasant thing. This is not a pleasant thing. Think in your minds to the most annoying person you saw this week. Had the the highest demand on you personally. Some of your ribs are being bruised right now because your spouse is elbowing you. But think of the person that, that... that had the highest demand on you, a boss, a coworker, a child, uh, a checker at Walmart, the person that exacted the most energy from you. You saw them, you wanted bad things to happen to them, it, at the very best, no good things to happen to them. Maybe their car tires all go flat. I don't know. Maybe. This is what he's talking about. It's not finding somebody lovable. It's not finding somebody that you enjoy their company and just think, hey, can I come alongside you and we'll just bear up one another. You know, we'll just, we'll just come together and we'll talk about how great our lives are. We'll go fishing. We'll go hunting. We'll do all these great things together. And at the end, we're going to high five. And it could, be, it could be like a beer commercial or it could be a brotherhood commercial or it could be anything because everybody's going to want it. It's going to be great for us. Think of the opposite of that. Instead, lock in your mind that person that has exacted this great toll from you, this person that has been insanely difficult to deal with. Imagine doing life with that person in church, and that's the person you come up alongside. That's the person you endure. That's the person you seek to lift up. Another image would be a person coming in, and they are on crutches. They are limping. They've got both legs, and so they're kind of doing this number, and they've got the cheap crutches, the type that stop right at your elbows, and so they're all kind of unbalanced. You come alongside. You put that person's arm over yours, and you're carrying this person along. It's difficult. It costs you something. Bearing one another will cost you something. It will be difficult. It will be exhausting. And you know what? You might get to the very end of it and you might not even be thanked. You don't do it because of the thanks. You don't do it so that you'll win over a friend. This isn't some PBS special that at the end of it, all of a sudden you're best friends, lifelong lifelong buddies. Could be that you get to the end of this process of burying somebody, enduring somebody, aiding this person, driving them along. You get to the end of it, and you're no more inclined to have this person over for dinner than you were when you began. It's not this call to transforming friendships, making enemies friends, but it's this call to investing yourself in the lives of people who are difficult to be around. And I've got breaking news for some of you. You are difficult to be around. 
Like you're looking at other people in the pew and you're thinking of other people. I got news for you, friend. They're thinking of you. Like, why? Surely not. Moi? (laughs) Pastor, are you delusional? That's the hard thing, right? You're looking uh, and thinking about people that you could come alongside and and you're like, man, I'm I'm totally going to help them out. And you're going to walk over and say, look, Matt told me I need to find somebody to bear up. And I'm here to bear you up. And this person's thinking, oh, Lord, I don't think I can endure it. That's difficult. That's difficult. And you think, well, I'm just working for their sanctification. See, this is the difficult thing in here. We tend to see ourselves in the best possible light. We tend to see ourselves and and, and the things going on in us in the best possible light and see those things in everybody else. And, oh, they've got evil intention. Oh, they've got evil desires. I'm going to go help them out. We're all messed up. We've all got problems. Especially the person that thinks they've got none. Paul says you need to bear with one another. And then he offers us this word, which is especially timely. He says, you put on these things, you bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. It's forgiveness. This idea that, that if Chase does something to me, that, that I owe him in the gospel to go to him and to forgive him. That if I go to him in the gospel and forgive him, then he receives that forgiveness, he returns it back to me. That if Ross does something against me and Ross is hard against me, he doesn't want to be forgiven. The command in the gospel is still that I extend forgiveness to him. Not in some high, mighty sense of forgiveness where I'm trying to to, to get it out of him or I go to him and say, Ross, you're a terrible person. You've been terrible to me. I saw you key my car, man. I saw you let the air out of my tires, Ross. Ross is just smiling. He's like, I have no idea what he's talking about, people. He's crazy. We're not trying to guilt people into offering forgiveness it's not this idea that when you catch your kids doing something wrong and you need to say you need to tell your brother or sister that you're sorry and they they, sorry oh man that's heartwarming can y'all hug now when you get a get this on on uh, instagram just jiffy pronto the reason christians are able to forgive It's because we recognize, look here, we recognize this. If one has a complaint against another, we forgive each other. How? How do we do this? We do it. We're enabled to do it. We're demonstrated what it is. We're challenged to do it because as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. How has he forgiven you? Has he forgiven you partially or wholly? Has he forgiven you a little bit or has he forgiven you much? He forgives you so much. He forgave you entirely. He transformed. That's why Paul talks about it being a dead person and being a live person. He says you've died to the former way that you are. You're now you're alive in Christ. You were formerly dead in your transgressions, but now you've been raised with him. You have put on Christ. That's why he separates it so much. He says, this is how you were, but this is who you are now. In Colossians, he says it this way. You've been moved from darkness and into light. That's how we forgive. That's what our forgiveness looks like. 
We're challenged to freely extend grace and forgiveness to one another, especially, especially when you think the other person doesn't deserve it. When I was in college, I was really struggling with this idea of forgiveness. I really thought I had it all worked out. I've been forgiven much, and so I freely forgive those around us. Somebody wrongs me, I forgive them. Somebody does something to me, I, I, I move to forgive them. But I had a hard place in my heart that I refused to let go of. that I only got there because of the gospel. I had this situation in my life where, where I've been caused immense pain and suffering, where in, in, in a real sense I was, I was innocent. And I know a lot of people say that. Something that had happened to me as a child that I was completely innocent of. And a hardness and a bitterness in my heart against those who had done. I didn't want to just not see good things happen to them, but I wanted to see bad things happen to them. I wanted to see them punished. I wanted to see them tormented. And in me, I saw this as as just a sense of righteous justice. I was never able to really understand what forgiveness is. Until God did a supernatural work of healing in my heart. that allowed me to look on those that had hurt me. Those that had sinned against me, those that had had done these things. Until God did the supernatural work of healing, I was not able to forgive them. And because I was unable to forgive them, until that time when he moved to heal my heart to allow me to extend forgiveness to them, friends, I never knew what forgiveness was until I felt that. Some of you go through the same stuff. Your husband left you, your wife left you. I don't know what it is. You've suffered a tremendous injustice, and yet you still hold on to it, and you're so angry over it. It's not easy to forgive. It's not easy to forgive, especially if we've been really hurt. Some of you hold on to petty stuff, and you need to let that go. But some of you are holding on to some things that are absolutely gut-wrenching, soul-crushing, that if people around you knew, they would cry out for justice on your behalf. Forgiveness still needs to go forth, especially when it's hard. Let's get back into this. So Paul moves through, he gives us this 
this adornment of compassion and hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He says, this is how you test if you're doing it. You bear with one another. You forgive the jerk. You move past it. You do that. You're able to do that because of what he's done in you, how he's affected you. You forgive everything because he's forgiven you everything. And he gets all of that. You feel fully clothed. You're like, I've got it. This is my coat of many colors. I am beautiful. I've got compassion. I've got patience. He looks at you and says, aha, you're missing something. You're missing something. He says, above all these, put on love. This is the picture he paints for us. You're decked out. You've got your shirt, your pants, your shoes. If you're a woman, you've got all the stuff that you wear. And then on top of all these things, you put on a belt. You put on this outward covering. And it's love. All these things, if you try and do them, but don't have love holding them together are going to unravel, they're going to work against themselves and they're not going to be, accomplish, to be accomplishing their goals. He says, above all these, put on love because this is what love does. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. God has moved towards you in love. We find in this passage that we are beloved. We found as we read through Malachi together that he has loved us, love is holding all of these things together. It is binding them all together. It's choosing to overlook the things that people do against us. It's choosing to freely extend forgiveness to them. It's choosing to freely invest ourselves, involve ourselves in the lives of those around us, to bear up with them, to endure them as they too endure and bear us. And then he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are indeed called in one body. There's a lot written and said about peace today. How are you feeling? I just don't have a peace with that. I just, I don't know. I just, you know, I've got some turmoil. I'm just really anxious. I'm just, I don't have this deep sense of peace. And so we do any number of things to try and create this peace in our lives. We, we look at cutting things out. Oh, I really just want peace in my life, so I don't listen to loud music anymore. Oh, I really want peace in my life, so I just don't talk to them anymore. Oh, I really want peace in my life. So I just, I just cut this habit. I cut this, this thing out of my life. Where does this peace come from? It's not something you can create. It's not something that, that you can foster, something that you can make happen in your lives. We read that this peace comes from Jesus. And there are things you can do to work against this peace, but the thing you do to bring this peace into your life is saying, Lord Jesus, have reign in me. Lord Jesus, look over my life, inspect my heart, inspect all the closets where I've hidden sin and hurt and wounds and set them all free. Lord Jesus, rule in my heart, in my beings. Lord Jesus, have your rule in me. We see him sitting on his throne as the monarch of our hearts, giving full decree to everything. Give me passions, give me everything that I want, give me desires, and let them be from you. Not those selfish things that I want for myself, but Lord Jesus, let your peace rule in my heart. Sit on the throne of my heart, sit on the throne of my life. This is what a church should be. How do we have peace and harmony in the church? It's not by changing our structure. How do we have peace and harmony in the church? It's not by exercising church discipline, saying, look, you're just difficult, D, you've gotta go. 
How do we have peace and harmony in the church? It's not by singing the right songs. It's not by having this perfect balance of of old and new. How do we have peace and harmony in the church? It's not by letting everybody weigh in on every little thing that they want to do. How do we have peace and harmony in the church? It's by letting Jesus rule. Who runs the church? Jesus. Who rules the church? Jesus. Who should rule in our hearts? And in as much as he does, will rule in the church. Jesus. You know why people have problems in churches? Because Jesus is not ruling in their hearts. They are. You know why so many of us have marital struggles and stresses? It's because Jesus doesn't rule in our marriage. We do. You can apply this to every relationship you're in in life reason our country and our world is in such a mess, it's not because we don't have great politicians and brilliant minds. It's because Jesus is not ruling in the hearts of the people. You want to get your life right? Let it go. Quit trying to rule it, to wreck it, to drive it where you think it should go. Step back and let him rule. Let him reign. This is what we were called for. We should be thankful for it. Verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This passage is so good for us. 12 through 17 has so many things that as we go through and we see that we are to be forgiving one another, we are forgiven much. And here in verse 16, we see we need to be a people of the book. We need to be a people of his word. He says, let his word dwell in you richly. And what should it be doing? It should be teaching and admonishing us. It should be the sum and source and substance of our wisdom. Too many of us find our satisfaction snacking on this. This week, Valerie made this amazing dip. It was ridiculous. I would eat dinner, I would be satisfied, and then I'd go over, I'm like, got any more of that dip left? And I would snack. I mean, I'm full, I'm satisfied, and I'm just sitting over there, I got Fritos, I'm just... And she looks at me like, could you crunch louder? It's like, <laughs> I thought it was a challenge. <laughs> but so many of us, this is how we treat the word of God. We, we, we've got a problem, we run to it. We want to see a solution, we run to it. A friend's got an issue, we run to it. And we're kind of snacking, we're pulling stuff out of there, saying, how can I compartmentalize and use this in this area of my life? We should be feasting on the word. How do you let it dwell in you richly? By being occupied in it daily, moment by moment, taking every thought captive according to what the word says. So many of us struggle with with identity and who we are and what we do because we don't apply this word to our lives. We snack on it. We want to be just a little bit more. We're full up with those things that come in our life and so we we snack on the word and think that's enough. You're starving yourself spiritually if all you ever do is come to church on a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night and that's the only time you open the word. You're starving yourself spiritually. Quit snacking on his word and start feasting on it. Let it dwell in you richly. Let's look at 17 together. 16 gives us this insight that scripture and, and songs and all these things that as we worship, it needs to come from a sense of our heart. And verse 17 gives us this capstone that covers everything. Whatever you do in word or deed, stuff that you say, stuff that you do, whatever you do in word or deed, can you find anything outside of these two things? No. No. 
So what does this encapsulate? What does this consist of? Everything. From the moment you drew breath to the moment you exhale your last. And all of these things, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is your litmus test for all things. Would this glorify God? Is Jesus glorified in this action? Is Jesus glorified in my heart? We take all things captive for Jesus. Is he ruling in my heart? You want to see our community transformed? Show men and women how Jesus can rule in their hearts. Demonstrate to them what it looks like to you and show them how they can find that in his word. Can I tell you my prayer for this church, for each and every one of you, for myself? I would never be satisfied with anything less than letting the peace of Christ rule in my heart. That it would manifest itself in freely giving forgiveness, enduring people, and people enduring me. Because I can be selfish. I can be hard to get along with. Some of you are nodding too vigorously. That's what I pray for each and every one of you. That just as he saved you, he would continue to transform you. Let me pray for us.